morning texts found in Psalm chapter 8, the book of the Psalms chapter 8. Please follow along as I read. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God, and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. I want to put before you this morning two massive realities in our world. One is abortion and the other is racial alienation and enmity. My aim in putting these two together is not to dwell on the awful connections that exist between the two realities, like the fact that the biggest abortion provider in the world, Planned Parenthood, was founded by Margaret Sanger, whose driving principles were explicitly racist. In her book, Women and the New Race, she wrote, the most merciful thing a large family can do to one of its infant members is to kill it, unquote. In her book, The Pivot of Civilization, she said that inferior races were, in fact, human weeds and a menace to civilization. She was part of the eugenics movement, which was led by Thomas Malthus, from which Malthusian birth control philosophy came, namely that all defectives, delinquents, and dependents should be eliminated from the race through calculated birth control, including abortion. That's the root and abiding significance of Planned Parenthood, I believe. Profound and horrible things can be said about the interwoven evils of abortion and racism, but that's not my purpose this morning. My purpose in bringing these two evils together is first chronological, and then theological. Chronologically, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day, the third Monday of every January now, and the 22nd of January is always the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and the following Sunday is always Sanctity of Life Sunday. Therefore, in the providence of God, we're forced to deal with these issues back to back. I don't think that's an accident. In God's mind. 
That's the chronological reason for putting them together this morning. The theological reason is the main point of the message. These two issues are about God. They are about a view of human being in relation to God. What you believe about the majesty of God and about the nature of human beings in relationship to the majesty of God will govern profoundly what you think and what you do in relationship to abortion and racism. If you really believe what you say, you believe. Whatever personal imperfections there were in the life of Martin Luther King, and there were some substantial ones, I commend to you the biography, The Trumpet of God, by Stephen Oates. Whatever personal imperfections there may have been in his life, King's life and mission were driven by a biblically informed vision of God and man. January 1956. He's in Montgomery, Alabama. He's 27 years old. He is averaging 30 hate letters a day. 25 obscene phone calls every day, numerous assassination plots. He gets one of those calls in the middle of the night in Montgomery. He hangs up afterwards, trembling, and goes to the kitchen and puts his head down on the kitchen table. He tells us in his book, Strength to Love, and says, Oh, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right, but, Lord, I must confess that I am weak now. I'm afraid the people are looking to me for leadership. And if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I can't face it alone. And then something life changing happened, according to his testimony. He said, it seemed as if an inner voice was speaking to him with quiet assurance. Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even to the end of the world. He saw lightning flash. He heard thunder roar. It was the voice of Jesus telling him to fight on. And then he wrote, he promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. And for the first time in his life, he said God was profoundly real to him and personal. And that experience stamped the rest of his life with all of its imperfections. It stamped the rest of his life. Whatever we may think about the civil rights movement or the pro-life movement, they are both historically, undeniably driven by a biblically informed vision of God and of man in relation to God. So that's the theological reason for putting the two together. They are God issues. Now, what I'd like to do is to take Psalm 8 and to lift a vision of God before you concerning his majesty and the nature of man in relation to that majesty And then draw out of that vision a truth which, if you embrace it, will radically affect the way you deal with the issue of abortion and racism. 
So let me try to articulate the vision. I'll state it kind of in summary form, and then we'll go to the text, and you can judge whether my summary is accurate. The vision I see of God in Psalm 8 is of a God who is majestic beyond words all over the world, who's worthy of worship, the most fervent allegiance and love and trust because of his majesty, and a vision of man as his supreme creation in and through whom that majesty is manifested in the world. The truth that I draw out of this vision is this. You cannot worship and glorify the majesty of God while treating his supreme creation with contempt. That's the truth. Let me state it again. The vision is that God is majestic above all the majesties of the universe, and even though dimmed, besmirched, obscured, compromised by sin, that majesty is manifested and reflected awesomely through his supreme creation, human being. The truth I draw from that vision is that you cannot worship or glorify the majesty of God while treating his supreme creation with contempt. Now let's go to the text. Is that so? Is that me or is that God talking? Verse 1 and verse 9 of Psalm 8 are the same. And whenever you see a short poem or a short psalm beginning and ending with the same powerful statement, it's fair to say that's the main point. So let's read it. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. The first thing And the last thing David wants you to hear in this psalm is God is majestic everywhere. Or to break it down into a few pieces, what's he saying? O Lord. Now, the two words for Lord in this text are two different Hebrew words. O Yahweh, our Adonai. What's the significance of that? Yahweh, the personal name of God, explicated in Exodus 3. I am who I am, the God who is absolutely never coming into being, never going out of being, never becoming, never improving, never growing, never in process, always absolutely perfect in glory, utterly self-sufficient, from whom everything else comes. Oh, Yahweh, our Adonai, our, our covenant, Lord. You have drawn near to us. I just read it this morning. Are you on track with me in Psalm 16? January 16, Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in thee I take refuge. I say to the Lord, thou art my Lord. Exactly the same. I say to Yahweh, thou art my Adonai. This is a theme running through the Psalms. Yahweh, the great covenant God, over all the universe, makes himself ours. 
And so when David celebrates the majesty of God, it's it's the majesty of the one who is absolutely, but who has come to us. Now we know in his son and made himself ours so that we can say, my God. He goes on and he says. Whose name is majestic name that identity, character, all that his nature is, is majestic. Glorious in all the earth. He's not a tribal God. He's not a territorial deity. He doesn't belong to any one nation or race. He is over all the earth. That's part one of the vision. God. Glorious. Majestic. Part two of the vision is found in verses three to five. Human being. Now, who are you? What are you? Verse three. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers. In other words, when I when I look up at sun, moon, stars, when I consider the planets and then I think that they were just flicked off by your finger. In other words, when I consider your greatness, what is man that thou dost take thought of him and the son of man that thou dost care for him? And here's his answer. Yet. Thou hast made him a little lower than God. Some translations have angels. It is translated angels in Hebrews 2.7. Um, I'm not sure which the original should be translated as. In either case, whether Elohim is heavenly beings or Elohim is God Almighty, it's an awesome statement. Can we just settle it there? We don't need to answer every problem, I'm not sure, but it's high. It's very, 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 very high. And dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. When Noel and I visited the Kennedy Space Center on our anniversary trip, a couple of weeks ago to Florida, we went. I don't know if you've ever been there, but they have this big IMAX theater, and you sit down, and, and the, you know it's all around you, and the shuttle takes off, and well, you know, up over your head, and takes your breath away, and and then you're floating up there in space, and they open the shuttle, and there's the the blue planet, and these two films. I came away and thought of it again yesterday. If I did not know God, I would be tempted to bow down and worship NASA scientists. I would. I mean, and then we went out and we visited these sites where the shuttle takes off. And you see the weight that is being lifted off the ground. I mean, it's like this building just going... And it, it's all computerized. Every little bolt has some kind of connection with some computer and the scientist watching it. To me, that's godlike. It is godlike. That's what this psalm is about. But even though there are a lot of people who do bow down at the altar of human achievement, they're making a big mistake. Because it would be like me 
going to the Kennedy Space Center, being taken to one of these big rooms where all the computers are laid out, and getting down on my knees before a computer and saying, praise you, computer. Praise you. Praise you. Not even thinking, a man made this thing. A human being thought it up. A group of human beings came together and somehow got all that information in this little box connected to that thing up there hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And here I am bound down at the box? That's a stupid thing. I should bow down at the scientist. That mistake of bowing down at the computer when I should be bowing down at the scientist is the same mistake people make when they bow down before the scientist. Who thought him up? Who designed this? 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 Where did we come from? God. That's the point of this song. Yes, you're awesome. Yes. I mean, it's just incredible what human beings can build, design, lights. And if we bow down before human beings... You know what God might do? He might unplug us. Here I am bowing down at this computer and the scientist is looking. You're impressed with the computer? Watch this. He unplugs it. It's dead. It's over. Zero. Nothing. Zero! A computer does nothing if it's unplugged. And all God has to do to show what we really are is just unplug us. We, every millisecond of our life, are totally dependent upon God. He's our life. We are what we are because he mediates his life to us. And if we can accomplish something, it's because he's an awesome God. Isn't it amazing that the psalm begins and ends, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name. And it's man who celebrated in the middle of this psalm. The vision, therefore, has two parts. God is majestic, and he means for his majesty to be reflected in the wonder of man. The truth I draw from that is, you cannot worship and glorify the majesty of God if you hold or treat his supreme creation, humans. With contempt. You can't starve an aged human and glorify the majesty of God. You can't dismember an unborn human and glorify the majesty of God. You can't gas a Jewish human and glorify the majesty of God. You can't lynch a black human and glorify the majesty of God. You can't treat pregnancy like a disease and glorify the majesty of God. You can't treat racial mingling in neighborhoods as a pestilence and glorify the majesty of God. It's a relevant text. It can't be done. You cannot worship and glorify the majesty of God while treating his supreme creation with contempt. The next time somebody asks you, why are you against abortion? Try this answer. Because no amount of inconvenience could ever justify treating the supreme creation of God with murderous contempt. 
If anybody asks you, why in the world do you stay in a neighborhood where your property values are going down because of racial change? Try answering, because no amount of real estate value could ever justify treating the supreme creation of God with contempt. And then, after you've given those answers, read to them Psalm 8 and share with them whether they believe the Bible or not. Just let them hear it. Read to them Psalm 8. It's an awesome text for an unbeliever to hear or a person who's a believer and who doesn't share your convictions on these things. Read Psalm 8 and say, as I read this psalm, man's unspeakable dignity is correlated with God's unspeakable majesty. And I live for the majesty of God, and I cannot believe that any degree of inconvenience or any loss of money would justify treating the supreme creation of God with contempt. Tonight, in this room, Bill Pinnell will share his heart with us as a black brother who has seen much and who has grave concerns about where we are in racial relations today. The whole service will be devoted to that, and it will be that and not just talk about that. I hope you have the courage to come We make ourselves vulnerable as a church. I feel real good about doing that. I had a call from a black pastor when we did this last year, and he said, John, are you okay? He said, I'm sorry if we did anything that was too hurtful. I said, it was Leroy Gardner, great old man. He's going to be here tonight. I said, Leroy, I didn't hear a word I shouldn't have heard. It's okay. Don't worry, man. I know. It's all right. It's all right. Okay. Now, tonight, that's the way I feel. I feel like going in and says, go ahead, call me whatever name you want. Just go ahead, say we're all white, just about here. Just tell us we're living in, a, in an unreal world. Tell us we haven't done what we should do. Go ahead. It's, I, I just feel real healthy about making ourselves vulnerable. And I hope you feel secure enough to make yourself vulnerable tonight, too. So that's tonight. Let me close by... Focusing the last few minutes on one verse and the issue of abortion. Verse 2. It's an amazing verse. An amazing verse in this regard. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou, God, hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Now, there are a few unclear things in this verse. I think there are enough clear things that we could all agree on as to make the point I want to make. Let me mention three. One clear thing is this. God has adversaries. See that? Thine adversaries. God has adversaries. Another clear thing in this verse is the adversaries are going to be silenced. They're going to be stilled. They're going to be made to cease. So far, so good. Third clear thing is... The means of God's triumph over his adversaries is what comes out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes. There are some differences about how to translate what comes out of their mouth. That's okay. I'm not even going to go into that. What is clear is something comes out of the mouth of nursing babies that crush the enemies of God. And that captured my attention. What is that? What is that? Let's go to verse 5 for a clue. David asked in verse 4, what is man? What is human being 
And his answer is, thou hast made him a little lower than God or angels and dost crown him with majesty. You made him. He's in a radically different category from all other animals because he's way up there just below God or the angels. And three, you crowned him with glory and majesty. That's this creature called human being. Now go back and connect that with verse two. These are little human beings. Little awesome human beings. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, God has established strength or ordained praise, another translation. Because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the avenger cease. Now, why is it that what comes out of the mouth of these little humans has such strength that it can overcome the enemies of God? And I think the key is in verse five. These little ones are made by God, made by God, made in China, made in Taiwan, made in USA, made in God. God made them. Where did he make them? Here, in the mother's womb. Three roses. Why do I think that? Job 31, 15. He, did not he who made me in the womb make my servant? And the same one fashion us both in the womb? So when the Bible talks about God makes a person... It might allude to creation of Adam and Eve. But this verse and the one in Jeremiah 1, 5 and uh, Psalm 139, 13 speak of he makes every human being. He does it here. Which means that verse 5 is about verse 2. This awesome creature who is not only now made in the womb, but is a little less than God and is crowned with glory and honor. What he's saying is, when that little baby, either to say, I'm hungry, or change me, or I like this, or you're nice. Whatever that baby says, it's an awesome sound in heaven. Why? It's not a dog. It's not a cat. It's not a horse. It's not a frog. It's a little less than God. So much so that we better say to the adversaries of God in that person, if you hold this being in contempt, even to the point of killing it, you're coming down. You're coming down. You're going to be defeated. You're going to be silenced. Don't do it. And my closing admonition to you is, do not be a part of the adversaries of God by holding in contempt the supreme creation of God at any stage of his or her development, or any color, red and yellow, black and white, they are awesome in his sight. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would establish these people 
in their convictions in a day when your majesty is trampled and your creatures are trashed. Lord, lead us into battle. May we fight not with the weaponry merely of the flesh, but with the spirit, with truth, with love, care, with courage. Lord, when we get back together tonight, I pray that there would be an anointing upon us to show us the broader picture of the awesome dignity of your supreme creation and how we must find ways to be reconciled and not to hold anyone in contempt. In Jesus' name I pray.